0: Hi, everybody. Before we start episode 12 proper, this is J.R. Parker. My full name is John Robert Parker, Jr. I wanted to take a minute to introduce a special guest at the beginning of the show. My father, John Robert Parker, Sr. Uh, My dad turns 80 today, which is really exciting. And uh, I wanted to have him on the podcast for a minute since he's the but-for cause of the podcast. If it weren't for my dad's interest in Twin Peaks, I'm not sure I would have gotten into it when I was in eighth grade so many years ago. So I just wanted to have him on for a minute to say hello. How are you doing, Dad? I'm doing good, Jr. and I appreciate the invitation. And I want to thank you and all of your buddies that have been working on the podcast. I've been listening to them all and watching the episodes of Twin Peaks of Return. I just wanted to add that A long time ago, when I started watching the first year, Twin Peaks was so different from any of the other TV shows in terms of intriguing and the way the plot shifted and developed. Uh, But I got to tell you, you guys are way ahead of me now, okay? And I appreciate uh, being here and being able to say hello and thank you for all you're doing. I'm proud of all of you. And I guess I'd like to close by saying what Diane did in episode 12. Let's rock. Okay. All right. Thanks, Dad. Take care, and happy birthday. we're back with wrapped in podcast episode 12 in this episode we're going to talk about part 12 of twin peaks the return entitled let's rock i'm jr parker we're joined this week by kyle king how are you doing kyle uh how am i doing to
1: paraphrase craig kilborn and now your moment of fin and
0: uh ken walzak how are you doing
1: Doing well. I'm enjoying some cherry pie in the faint hope that it will bring real Cooper back to us and to spite Rooney
0: Marr. And uh, uh, we're joining us again is Ken Fallis. Jesus. I made the same mistake as an uh, overworked uh, Twin Peaks web reporter and called Jeff Ken. Uh, Jeff Fallis. How are you doing, Jeff?
2: Yeah, I'm good. Ken Fallis was manufactured for a purpose, and it's been boiled down to a a golden ball uh, in another dimension. But I'm Jeff Fallis myself. I'm I'm doing great. I'm recovering from an injury. I was was hit in the head uh, while playing uh, a game of Catch, and all I can find myself thinking about is who's
0: Tina and Chuck. Are you sure it was a game of Catch, not an argument in front of a donut store? Okay.
2: I uh, okay. it's it's hard to say. All it, right, well, good. My, well, I, I, my memories hoping, are unclear. I'm
0: hope I'm hoping for Too the form. Too soon. Former. Too soon. Yeah, really. He's only been gone twenty years. Poor Jack. Um All right, well we we, we start out at episode in, in in part twelve at the Mayfair Hotel. Uh we get a whole bunch of exposition, but before we get there, there's an opening shot with a lot of different color colors, So I'm just going to defer that to Kyle. All right. Yeah, I, I swear I've been
3: trying to not see this. But when the opening scene is a shot of the exterior of the Mayfair and immediately visible, you've got the hotel sign to the left, which is red, glowing red. Directly beneath it is the traffic light, which is on red. And then in the middle, you've got a green neon sign in the window that illuminates the entire doorway. And then over on the right, you've got a street lamp, which is bathing that area in yellow. You've got the continued presentation of the theme of balance using the traffic light colors for the third consecutive episode. And again, it's not just me, right? I'm not the only one seeing this, am I? No,
0: I mean, those are in fact the colors that appear in that scene. Yeah. Balance. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, they, we're definitely seeing all three of those colors.
2: We're all seeing it now that you've implanted it in our brains, Kyle. So we're on the alert for red and green, especially. So, yeah. Right. Exactly.
0: Right. Yeah. <laughs> Can't stop right. seeing it. That's right.
1: <laughs> My bad. Well, in, in,
0: as we get to the scene, Gordon is spinning around the room. Uh, we think that's probably him looking for bugs either of the uh, insectoid kind or uh, of the surveillance kind. Albert, Gordon, and Tammy are drinking wine, a uh, Bordeaux from Gordon's private stock. Uh, Albert makes a joke about it being from his private stock that, of course, Gordon misses. Anyway, in this, co- in the course of this conversation, we find out about Project Blue Rose. This is kind of an initiation rite for Tammy, although there's not much ritual to it. They explain to her uh, that... Project blue rose kind of picked up where project blue book left off that it was a top secret task force. uh, And it was a joint task force between the FBI and the department of defense. It was named because a woman in one of these cases uttered the word blue rose before she died. And the blue rose boys were coop Albert agent Chester Desmond, which means the dream of deer meadow is no more. Uh, and Philip Jeffries, Jeffries was selected to head the task force. Uh, what's interesting is they don't talk about who in the Department of Defense is involved with the task force, even though it's a joint task force. Uh, we can presume that Dougie Milford, Garland Briggs are involved, uh, but clearly they kept the DOD and the FBI uh, separate from each other, uh, given that, you know, there was obviously when Coop came to town, he didn't know anything about Garland Briggs, and what he was doing there. Albert notes that Chester uh, disappeared without explanation. And, you know, this whole course of this conversation is for them to invite Tammy uh, into the blue rose fold. Apparently they've been watching her since she was an honors student at George Washington High School and then proceeded to go to MIT. Uh, so, yeah, that's, that, that, that's going on there. I know Kyle and Jeff, you both had some thoughts on this scene and its implications.
3: Well, just that it immediately, obviously ties it into uh, Twin Peaks. The, it ties Twin Peaks: The Return rather in with the Secret History of Twin Peaks and Fire Walk with Me. Albert also notes that it was done in 1970, uh, which is during the tenure of President Nixon, who, of course, prominently appears in the Secret History, and who, uh, just to you know, hammer on a few themes here, is named Richard, is buried in Yorba Linda in a rose garden underneath a sycamore tree. So there's, there's a lot of tie in in this brief exposition. Yeah, And
2: I'll, I'll mention uh, briefly kind of the tie in specifically to the secret history. Um, there's uh, a great little bit uh, kind of about in, in the adventures of kind of Dougie Milford uh, during this kind of immediate post blue book era. And uh, some of Dougie Milford's interactions with, with Nixon uh, and in the, uh, there's a transcription. There's a, a February 1973 conversation in The Secret History between Dougie Milford, Richard Nixon, and Jackie Gleason. And Milford says that his personal opinion is that, quote, While I and my fellow investigators in Blue Book ran around for two decades tracking cases the Air Force and military had in their possession from the beginning and have since continued to accumulate a great deal more evidence than they are ever willing to share with us. Also bear in mind that all the other branches conducted their own investigations, and they're all equally, un- remarkably unwilling to share results with each other. Uh, and then Milford kind of goes on to say he feels that Blue Book is sort of a, a cover operation, gives the appearance a meaningful inquiry into kind of UFO, and I really loved uh, what uh, the way um, Albert described this, the troubling abstractions raised by cases that Project Blue Book failed to resolve. So uh, I felt like... Milford says he felt like Blue Book, you know, investigated those things, didn't actually intend to give any real information to the public. Uh, And then he also believes that the military intelligence communities go all along has been the quashing, debunking, discouraging of general civilian curiosity, while the entire time they were pursuing their own investigation in this matter on a separate deep, dark track, which had nothing to do with us. So Milford's account of things lines up more or less exactly with what Albert's saying here about kind of Project Blue Book. Um, and, uh, Milford's investigation at the blue pine mountain listing post alpha kind of outside twin peaks in the secret history is linked, uh, more or less explicitly to Cole's blue rose enterprise blue rose. I don't think is mentioned specifically, but, um, the archivist, uh, in the book who's major Briggs, um, uh, calls it the centerpiece of uh, Milford's efforts to plunge deeper into, The post-blue book miasma of UFO uh, investigation, and then interestingly enough, another little side note from the Secret History: uh, Tamara Preston, you know, is kind of annotating this dossier, uh, the Secret History that we find out the archivist Major Briggs prepared. And in this section, she finds she's researching Chet Desmond and Sam Stanley, and she finds a short list that's from an erased document on a secure server in the Philadelphia FBI office. And it has the names on there, you know, has Jeffries, Cole, Desmond, Cooper, Albert Rosenfield on there. But it also includes Sam Stanley and Wyndham Earl, which I thought was interesting. Um, Maybe they weren't all necessarily Blue Rose members in the same way that Tamara is kind of initiated into this. But um, I'm interested in Lynch's complete kind of non-interest in Wyndham Earl, who hasn't been mentioned, if I'm correct, at once this whole season. And it was kind of brutally dispatched uh very uh quickly in in the season two finale uh despite him having been i think the centerpiece of the original script that lynch mostly discarded uh to film uh season two so that's kind of my uh my uh, semi-weekly uh secret history corner and one final thing about this um a further proof that uh the x-files was created uh in the blue rose uh mythos uh that came in in twin peaks firewalk with me
0: I'm glad that you brought up Wyndham Earl. It's, it's been a kind of small gripe I've had all along. I really liked the character of Wyndham Earl. I liked his sort of mad sorcerer type persona. I think he represented a, a better class of Dugpa than uh, we've been getting in terms of like bad Cooper. Uh, and, and, you know, I'd really like to see him come back, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen. And I meant to go and check the autobiography of Dale Cooper because there is a lot in there a lot of dense stuff about his interactions with Wyndham Earl to get a sense if you know to what extent he was involved with Blue Rose especially given that he was obviously Cooper's superior officer it would be strange for Cooper to have you know be part of Blue Rose he must have presumably he became part of Blue Rose after his experiences in Philadelphia with Wyndham Earl and back to the scene uh, Tammy is very happy to Join the task force. Albert says he'll brief her in in the morning. Uh, there's some toasting. Uh, the second toast is to Tammy and the Blue Rose. The first toast was to the Bureau. And Kyle, I think you may have a personal anecdote you could share.
3: Yeah, and I, I, I kind of went back and forth on this. You can decide whether it makes the final cut, but just for what it's worth, uh, my dad was actually interviewed by Project Blue Book. Uh, there was a, uh, a UFO sighting in South Georgia in the 1950s, and my dad was one of several people who saw it. It wasn't, fortunately, one guy out in a cornfield. It was a bunch of people at various places who saw something in the sky that then dropped very suddenly. Uh, and then they all ran and converged on it and found, uh, as my dad describes it, three perfect circles burned into this area where it had fallen. And uh, uh, some guys from the Air Force came and, and uh, he gave an interview. So uh, Jimmy Carter, not the only uh, South Georgian uh, who, who uh, saw a UFO and was interviewed by Project Blue Book. So Kyle, have you? you go. go ahead.
0: Sounds like, a, so, sounds like a weather balloon to me.
2: Yeah, exactly. Kyle. Have you filed a, a Freedom of Information Act request for the actual your your the interview of? Uh... Uh,
0: you
3: know, I have not. I, I I've always found found that story interesting, but I'd never really thought to to do anything about it. I don't want to get on these guys' radar.
2: Yeah, yeah. If you file the request now, they'll probably send you a a, a documented, you know, heavily redacted in about fourteen years. Yes. but it might be worth a try. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. So, can I ask a follow up question, Kyle? Yeah. So has this experience and your personal connection to it left you like a a personal subscriber to UFO theory? Are are you genuinely a believer?
3: No, I I wouldn't go that far. I will say that the the public explanations are are not satisfying explanations. Uh, I don't I don't pretend to have a a better explanation, but I know that what we've been told can't possibly be right.
2: Huh? There's more on that's heaven and earth than is dreamt of in our philosophy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah.
0: That's, that's what a cool story. Yeah. Thank you. So Diane texts Gordon and appears from behind a red curtain, wearing a red top and a black skirt, We're carrying a leopard coat. She's got a red and dusty yellow bracelet, almost a copper colored bracelet. Colors. Colors. And Albert offers Diane a drink, uh, Gavori vodka, uh, which she drinks on the rocks, prompting a Ice Age joke from Albert.
3: Yeah, and, and while we're on the colors, Gordon
0: and Tammy are sitting in
3: yellow chairs. Albert's sitting on a black couch in front of a red wall. And there, as you noted, Jr. she's wearing red and black, Diane, when she walks in. There are a lot of juxtapositions of red with black in this episode. And Diane is sitting in what looks like a brown chair, but behind her, there's a green chair as well. I, again, I don't pretend to know what all this means, but it's there.
0: Colors. Colors. So Diane has is deputized into blue rose. uh, And she kind of thinks about it for a second, then says let's rock and does this sort of motion with her fingers, her index and her middle finger kind of pointed uh, forward, which I, you know, we're not sure it looks kind of like the gesture from firewalk with me um, and the, the let's rock uh, gesture that the little man, the man from another place said.
2: Yeah, I wasn't sure about the gesture as much. I mean, I kind of went back and uh, looked at the two other times Let's Rock's come up in Twin Peaks. And I guess in you know, the, the third episode, the famous original Cooper's Dream sequence, uh, I think at the very beginning of it, uh, the little man from another place kind of moves backwards uh, away from this pole shuffling his feet, and, or shuffling his yeah, feet and his hands, rubbing his hands together, and he sort of says, Let's Rock. And then he sits down next to um, Laura Palmer, who touches her nose. Uh, that's a similar gesture to what Diane makes here, but not quite the same thing. Uh, and then later on in Fire Walk With Me, uh, Let's Rock is written in cursive in red. I always imagine this for some reason as being written in lipstick um, on Chet Desmond's car at the Fat Trout Trailer Park. And Cooper and Carl Rod are investigating Desmond's disappearance, and, and Cooper goes over to look at the car, there's this really great scene from the inside of the car, you know, and you kind of see the let's rock and it kind of zooms in uh, on the, um, uh, the, the writing and the noise, the, the music, I guess, uh, musical cue uh, on this kind of zoom in to the written let's rock on the car and firewalk with me. Um, is the same music that's used when Diane makes this gesture. And in Fire Walk With Me, another, right when this happens, you have the same musical cue, and then we hear Agent Cooper talking to Diane about the Teresa Banks murder. Um, and so that, I still wasn't quite sure how to read all this, and, it, and it, we get this kind of distinct linking with this moment in terms of the musical cue and the Let's Rock to The Little Man from Another Place, as well as to kind of Chet Desmond's, uh, disappearance uh, in Fire Walk With Me. So, you know, I wasn't sure how to read this. You know, Diane does appear from Red Curtains, which seemed to be almost an exact match for The Red Room as well. You know, so the one interesting theory that, that came up a lot, I think we had a listener uh, uh, write us uh, about this theory that, that the Diane we've met so far is some sort of a, a doppelganger. Uh, this would maybe tie into that interpretation of it. You know, is she real? Is she in league with Bad Coop? Is she working as a double agent? Um, I wasn't qu- quite sure, but that was, you know, what I came up with and and going back and looking at the other two times Let's Rock showed up in uh, Twin Peaks.
0: Yeah. You also noted that when Diane appears, she appears from red curtains and almost exactly a match to the curtains in the red room. Yeah. And you know, we go from this scene to what's now become a commonplace, which is jerry horn doing something in the woods uh here he's kind of frantically running out of the woods his fanny pack flapping uh in front of him he trips uh and that's the end of that scene (laughs) we don't we don't know if that's his foot or someone else's foot uh that that's involved with the trip
2: i felt relieved he was at least out of the woods um but
0: i Yes, yes, he was yes. yeah, metaphorically and literally out of the woods. We hope metaphorically.
3: Yes, we we are not out of the woods, Jerry Horn, out of the right.
0: woods. Right. And we get this the next scene was a scene that I maybe my favorite scene of this episode of uh Sarah Palmer shopping. Uh, Grace is just a fantastic actress and uh I thought that came across really really well in this scene. Agree, yeah. Um which uh she's Shopping for liquor, uh, like a scene out of Leaving Las Vegas, uh, where she's <clears throat> got a bunch of Bloody Mary mix. And this, the, the look of disappointment on her face when she can only pull three bottles of Smirnoff on the shelf for her to pull in there no more, uh, I thought was really beautiful. She gets to the uh, grocery counter to make her purchases, and she asks for some Salem's, uh, and then she starts freaking out as she's about to pay her bill over a display of beef jerky and turkey jerky. Uh, it's, it's very, very strange. And it looked like perhaps the close-up was originally on the beef jerky, even though apparently when Sarah asked about what changed, what actually changed was the turkey jerky.
3: Yeah, that, and that's, that's exactly what I saw as well, because I, when I, when it showed the beef jerky and her reaction, I assumed it was tied to that nature documentary that we saw her watching in the premiere. But then when they started talking about the turkey jerky instead, I couldn't help thinking about, uh, Laura's line about being long gone like a turkey in the corn, which of course was alluded to in the original series. And then we actually hear Laura say it in Firewalk with me.
1: Yeah. It's, it's weird, though. They start talking about the turkey. You get a shot of the turkey jerky. They pan over to the beef jerky, and then she has her freak out with a shot of just the beef jerky. It feels – they never talk about beef jerky at all. They're only talking about turkey while showing beef, which just feels like that same prop person screw-up who got the wrong vermouth, right? Like, if it's the wrong vermouth, it's the wrong jerky, and Lynch just rolls with it. It's very odd.
0: Right, and she, and she starts – She her voice almost changes. It. She didn't quite go into the, like, I'm a medium for the Black Lodge voice that she did in the last episode of season two. Uh, But she starts uh, asking these questions, you know, is it smoked? Were you here when they first came? Hmm. Uh, The room seems different. And men are coming. And, of course, when she says the room, I, of course, am immediately uh, thinking about the room above the convenience store. Uh, And we're not in a convenience store. We're in a supermarket. But. Uh, you know, I don't know. It, we we don't know what what Sarah has seen. It seems like
2: one of those types of stores that's almost half convenience, half grocery. You know, like it. it I don't know. Yeah. I I could see it as as being a stand-in for a convenience store in a way. Yeah, though it has. Yeah, I, uh, I think
0: right.
1: that's right. It has sort of a fancy deli at the back, though. There's an awning that seems like it says the end of like Montauk's
2: Best Deli. They clearly didn't film this in Washington, but yeah. You can actually see if you look at her uh, cart closely enough, it says California like cart return policy on there. So oh, there it was you probably go. filmed so, in California. Filmed in LA.
0: Ha. Well that's not Montauk.
1: No, no it's 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 a town ending in like UK. So yeah. something like uh, UK's best deli.
0: Ukaya? Uh I don't think so. Okay. that, that would be uh, Mark Frost's backyard. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um but it's definitely like UK apostrophe S best Deli. Something ux best deli.
0: Maybe they're in yeah, England,
1: the, the UK's Best Deli. Or, or Lexington, Kentucky, one of those if they two. could get
0: the tax cuts.
1: Yeah, that's right. They shot uh, in all of those places. That's right.
0: <laughs> uh, Jeff, you had some thoughts about the music in the scene, which is fantastic.
2: Yeah, I mean, just in general, I agree with you, too. This is one of my favorite sequences. And it was uh, uh, really just sad uh, and heartbreaking, you know, as well, to see what it, what it kind of – Happened to Sarah Palmer. And uh, one other thing, have any of you guys seen that? I think it's called the Between Two Worlds um, special feature on the Twin Peaks, uh, the complete mystery that came out in 2014. Have you guys seen that? I've watched it. Okay. Do you, it, it's the one where Lynch interviews, you know, Cheryl Lee, uh, Ray Wise, and Grace Abriski in character as Laura Palmer, Leland Palmer, and Sarah Palmer talking about their lives. In 2014, even though two of their characters would be dead, it's really bizarre. But, but this reminded me of, they, they talked to Sarah Palmer, and it's just, it's really disturbing to see her kind of enter into this character. And she talks about living alone in Twin Peaks, and I think watching, like, football and bowling on her TV, you know, which is interesting. Uh, and this this whole, you know, I think the the shot of Zabriskie shopping uh, in the grocery store in the aisle here was used in one of the early uh, promos for the season. And uh, it, it reminded me of, I, w- I just thought it was fascinating again, that uh, the same way we've talked about the missing pieces, you know, and, and that between two worlds piece that I think Lynch probably was running through these ideas for the season as he was assembling that set. But um back to the the actual sequence. Yeah. The musical cue in this sequence is the same as in the Philip Jeffrey scene in the FBI office in fire walk with me. So I associate it automatically with this, like, you know likelihood of whatever uh disappearance and transfer between two worlds and it seems like it it starts rising and so it it seems like that's almost what um uh uh sarah palmer is staving off is that potential for dislocation you know or something like that disappearance in the same way that philip jeffrey had um and then philip jeffrey's uh, had so also, I was interested in, you know, this Albatross brand jerky, which as far as I can tell doesn't exist from a quick Google search. I was curious about Albatross seems like a weird name for a turkey or beef jerky. You know, is the Albatross just kind of yeah. the psychic trauma that Sarah obviously carries around with her from what went on in her family? Is it the psychic price that comes from sort of having traffic with uh, the lodges and the lodge spirits? Um, and I also thought that that little icon on the Albatross logo, this might be a stretch, but it did sort of slightly resemble that thing on Cooper's Ace of Spades, also on Hawk's map that he wasn't going to yeah. tell us about, which we've said might be experiment or experiment mother. So, yeah.
3: Maybe the albatross means that uh, that she's gotten to be a really good golfer
2: since they opened up Ghostwood Country Club.
1: I find that unlikely. <laughs> I don't know. It's a, it's a Mark Frost production, as, uh, yeah. as Kyle keeps mentioning.
2: And yeah. she, she probably still has, she might still have Leland's um, clubs. You know that he was driving yeah. around with
1: so I would think yeah and, and probably
3: his membership I mean you'd think that at least Ben would have allowed you know him to keep his his uh, her to inherit his membership after he died yeah to me Sarah comes across in this scene as half log lady and half bag lady I mean she obviously doesn't have it together quite to the degree that the log lady does but there is a lot of that um something from the other world trying to break through but she she just hasn't gotten the handle on it that that the log lady has which is interesting because they both, in a way, went through similar tragedies uh, in that they both lost their husbands in, in pretty horrible ways.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, that was what I was going to say before, is that she's clearly struggling and she's got this sort of dissociative, schizophrenic, multiple personality type thing going on where she's talking to herself. She's telling herself, Sarah, just get the keys, get in the car, get out of here. And she refers to herself as Sarah, get the keys, get out of here. So, you know, to, to she seems to have some conception that there's some other entity inside of her speaking. We, we don't know exactly where that's going to go, but apparently she's still going to get her groceries because uh, the uh, clerk knows where she lives. And the next scene is at the new fat trout uh, trailer park where we see that Carl's office sign has been upgraded to an actual painted sign that says 9 a.m. Never before exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point uh, to 5 30 p.m. And Carl calls out to one of his tenants, uh, Criskel, and he asks him if he's been selling his blood again. And he he Carl proceeds to ask him a series of questions, uh, almost like using the Socratic method. You know, uh, did did you install a new propane tank for Jenkins? Uh, did anybody pay you for that? No. Did you mow lawns and rake leaves around the the trailer park? Did you get paid for that? No. And so Carl gives. Crystal 50 dollars for work and says don't worry about paying rent and tells him don't sell your blood carl says he doesn't like people donating their blood to eat and he says keep your blood crystal and you know my whole time i was watching this was like why can't you fucking pay him the first time he did the work <laughs> right <laughs> like why do you have to wait till you suspect he's going to sell his blood that now you're going to pay him for his work but it was weird because the way carl asked the question. Was you know the agency of payment was you know hit the idea that he would have been paying him for this work was entirely removed. We don't really know what Carl. I mean, is Carl the owner of the of the trailer park? Is he the manager? Is he the super? You know, it, was it his responsibility to pay him the first time? It's weird because you would think if he hadn't paid this guy and he should have, you know, he'd apologize for him. Rather than sermonize to him about, you know, he shouldn't sell his blood. All that could have been, you know, prevented if he just got paid on a timely basis. Yeah. uh, It was a weird, a weird scene.
1: Yeah, Jerem, maybe it works like when your friend, the bartender, comps you some drinks, where they're giving you something out of the pocket of ownership and not out of their own pocket. Maybe he's waiving rent and paying out of his own pocket for stuff that Crisco does around there that the management, or rather the ownership of New Fat Trout should be paying Crisco for. Maybe Carl's an intermediate layer between. That's the
2: way I read it, too. But, I mean, yeah, this might be just because I love Carl Rod. He's one of my favorite characters. And, yeah, I mean, he's... He he's he's might be the true Robin so far of uh, of season three to go back to our metaphor yeah. from a few a few episodes ago, but yeah,
1: yeah, and Harry Dean's really great. He's he really really sells it in that scene, which is why I think we're going through mental gymnastics to convince ourselves that he's not the capitalist oppressor here or the rentier here. Like he's just really really benevolent, and we
0: like him. I think Mike. One of my views on the scene is that we know that Carl has some gift of sight that other people don't, and I I think that. Carl has this intuitive understanding that the nefarious entities of the Black Lodge feed on humans on their sorrow, and I can't, you know, who, how could you imagine a more basic kind of commodified sorrow than people selling their blood so that they can eat? Uh, and I think Carl finds that whole concept disgusting, uh, and that's and an upsetting, and that's why he wants to make sure Crystal doesn't go do that. Yeah, um,
2: that's a great point. So, yeah,
0: that's a great point, JR. And I was also kind of reminded of. You know, in episode
2: eight, when we saw the woodsman, you know, reviving uh, Doppelkoop and it it was, seemed like this kind of, they were using his blood, smearing it kind of all over him. And we've seen blood kind of show up a yeah. few times in, in the Black Lodge, I think, in Fire Walk With Me. There's a really memorable shot where, I can't remember what's happening, but they throw the blood of someone on the chevron, black and white chevron, you know, uh, of floor of the, white, the Black Lodge and it disintegrates. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's a, that's a good point uh jr and it does seem like there's yeah it's something about blood that that could possibly you know be be a, a stand in for you know uh garman bozier or something like that so that's 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 a great point jr
3: well and meanwhile I- well and, and audrey later on is talking about uh, about uh, seeing someone bleeding right, if right. i remember right oh, i mean yeah. that, that that keeps coming up and and you do think with with uh with carl rod you know we've got all these fire walk with me references early on, and of course he's he's we've already seen in the return how Carl Rod can see some of these things, uh, and and to, I guess I took that fairly literally that uh, his concern was that he didn't want there to be uh, any more bloodshed. And uh, again, just for what it's worth, we'd seen him before sitting next to that red cooler, and now that he's out of the chair, we see that the chair he's been sitting in is green, which ties in to Ken your benevolence point. And and one last thing on the sign. Is it the same number of exclamation points on the sign as it is question marks in the way the giant is credited?
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll need to count that up. Yeah. Yeah, well, anyway, it's my hope that that the White Lodge takes vengeance against who we now know to be a member of the Black Lodge, Peter Thiel, who's <laughs> actively involved in investing in ways for— Old rich people to literally consume the blood of young healthy people to extend their lifespan.
1: Sure. So uh, I did think during the Karl Rod speech, um, and uh, you know, besides finding a, a link to a, a scathing critique of and Vanity Fair, as, as you did, Jer. Um, I uh, thought about poor Miriam, right, sitting in ICU and needing an operation, and presumably needing a lot of, like, blood being transfused. And so Lynch and Frost anticipated my real-world critique with Carl saying, like, well, I know that hospitals need a certain amount of blood. But then he goes on to say, like, well, they have plenty right now, which is sort of odd that he knows that or thinks he knows that. But. Well, they have plenty of this guys. They may not have plenty
3: of every- – Everybody's, but this guy's given his share. Stocked up on Crisco blood, yeah, yeah, that's
0: right. Okay, I think that's about all we have to say about that scene. So uh, <laughs> the next, the next scene is, <laughs> I think it's Dougie's only scene in this episode. It is
2: Dougie's is that only right scene,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah Doug, Dougie's only scene. He's in the backyard uh, with, with Jimmy, who throws a. He's. he's I think uh, Jimmy's got a baseball. With it, with a mitt, and I think Dougie's got a mitt too. And Jimmy throws the ball at Dougie, and it kind of hits his shoulder, and and Dougie just pretend like it, as if it didn't happen at all. It was great.
1: Yeah, I really like that scene. It was my favorite Dougie scene so yep. far. It's perfectly Love set it. up, perfectly composed, perfect comic timing. Just you get a nice little laugh, and then they move on to the next thing. It's great.
3: Yeah, they didn't spend ten minutes of of silence staring after the ball <laughs> bounced off of it. Right,
0: and the next scene is uh, not so funny. Um, Hawk arrives at the Palmer house to see Sarah. Um, and Jeff, you carefully noted that there's some dead grass in the Palmer yard, as opposed to the yard next door, indicating that something's wrong. Or Well, it certainly wouldn't be the first time that there's something wrong at the Palmer's house. But it, we get a shot of the ceiling fan. And when she comes to the door, she kind of immediately assumes that Hawk is there because of this scene in the grocery store. She seems pretty normal and well-composed, but then some some bottles are rattling in the kitchen, which it is by itself like, that's really weird. What the hell is going on? You know, we assume that Sarah Palmer lives alone, that there wouldn't be anything to cause bottles to rattle. Uh, and as those bottles rattle, she kind of un- herself unravels and, you know, says, it's like some goddamn bad story, isn't it, Hawk? And Hawk offers her assistance, but does not go asked to come in and see what's going on, which, you know, kind of disappointed me.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I was like cheering for him to do that and it didn't
0: happen. And we got,
2: you know, know, I think, uh, I'm not sure which version of Laura's theme, you know, the original issue, Battle of Menti, Twin Peaks music, as he, as Hawk kind of pulled up there. And this was, you know, I think this really, really felt like a a, a original uh, series, Twin Peaks uh, scene for those who are concerned about this, but yeah. Yeah,
3: absolutely, and it was creepy for that reason. You got the Palmer House, you got the Battle of Minty music, you got the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department vehicle, you got the ceiling fan spinning. Uh, and like you, I was, I was kind of hoping that Hawk was going to, you know, give her some signal of, you know, blink or nod or something if you, if you need help, if you need me to come in. And he didn't do any of that, which is, is very unlike Hawk, who's, who's usually the the most perceptive, uh, member of the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. This was a scene that really would have been better played with Andy there rather than Hawk. And it's curious that they used Hawk in this way. And, and I really hope it was Oscar in the kitchen unloading the groceries, but I really don't think it was. Yeah. Might
2: was be a- Oscar struggling for life among the uh. the grocery bottles or something. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Have, having been Miriamed
2: Yeah. Really disturbed. One other thing I did think about, um, you know, Hawk, I think, asks Sarah, is someone in the house? And I think her response is no, it's just something in the kitchen. But that someone being in the house, you know, like, uh, it reminded me of a, a couple of things. One, the very, very, very first scene of the season, uh, the giant or the artist formerly known as the giant or the fireman saying it is in our house now uh, to Agent Cooper. Uh, and then I was also reminded of, I think it's, is it... Uh, Leland's funeral when, or I, there's one of the interrogation scenes of Sarah Palmer. or they're, they're in the like living room and she's like, who's upstairs. Who's up? it might be earlier. Uh, but when she thought that there was someone else kind of in the house, it might've been after Laura died and the um, uh, yeah, it might be that early, but yeah, that all that, that sense of something being wrong in the Palmer house is deep, deep back and also ties into uh, uh, the giant and the, that key scene, I think uh, at the beginning of the season.
0: When you think about it, like, no, it's just something in the kitchen is a terrifyingly ambiguous statement. Yes. Yeah. Right. Because, like, if you have a cat or a dog that's rattling those bottles, you'd say it's the cat or the dog, but it's just something. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, a rat, you know, like, what, what, what could it be that's a matter of casu- you know, casual indifference? I, I can't come up with anything. Well,
1: especially in this show and in that house. Right, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. um, right. I do want to mention, yeah.
0: though, there was a really great tweet uh,
1: that, of course, I don't remember who it was, so I can't credit them. But that just said that this scene featured, finally, the return of a fan favorite.
0: Okay, so we're back at the Mayfair Hotel. Uh, Diane's at the bar. She's got a red top, a leopard jacket, no bracelets on her. They're sitting beside her glass. And I think at this point, I'm going to turn it over to you, Ken.
1: Okay, we don't want to do Miriam in the hospital. It's just a quick...
0: Oh shit! I'm sorry. You're right. You're right. I skipped Miriam. Miriam's in the Twin Peaks hospital. Uh, it reminded several of us of the morgue scenes in the original pilot. Seeing her on the bed for some reason made me think she was going to get a pillow like Jacques Renault.
2: Yeah, she did seem especially uh, vulnerable, and I think someone also pointed out there might be blue roses next to her on her bedside. So
1: they're purple. They're various. They're purple. Okay. Various shades
2: right. of violet, and yeah, uh, I thought that sounded. A little bit like of a stretch, but I did read that somewhere.
1: I mean, could be someone's TV has different settings than my iPad. But
0: Okay, so Mayfair Hotel, uh, go for it, Ken. Oh, great. So,
1: Diane is drinking a martini. I assume it's a vodka martini. We certainly learn in this episode that her beverage of choice is vodka, and she's been drinking out of little uh, clear mini bottles and such throughout the sh- series, so it makes sense that it would be vodka. There's a lot of vodka in this episode, and the brand that seems to have paid for product placement is Gavori, G-V-O-R-I, which I didn't know anything about, but appears to be Polish and which you can get for um, $28 for a handle bottle at BevMo out here in the fine state of California. Um, so it's a budget purchase, uh, like Smirnoff, which uh, famously won a New York Times taste test. And I just think I should point out that you should always buy Gavori or Smirnoff over something like Belvedere or Grey Goose, because your Belvedere and your Grey Goose is going to be more expensive just because of advertising budgets and because of the principle that luxury goods are thought of as better if they are priced higher. I have a friend who had an interesting and much-cited rant about vodka some years ago, which I will paraphrase briefly. He asked me not to identify him on the podcast because he now works for a beverage conglomerate that sells a lot of vodka. And uh, as a popular t-shirt says, vodka pays the bills. So it's no longer in his best interest to trash vodka. But um, at one point, he pointed out that vodka as a category is full of liars. And the reason, reasons behind that are that a column still that they use to produce vodka will, um, filter out all of the, um, uh, impurities as vodka thinks about it, but, um, flavor, as brown liquor drinkers would think of them, which is to say congeners, uh, any anything that would be interesting to taste or smell from the spirit, basically. The whole point of distilling something over and over and over again is to take as many of those things out. So the flavor profile that's left is going to be within a very narrow bandwidth, right? And there are an awful lot of big-time, hand, so-called handcrafted or artisanal vodkas out there that are just pure grain alcohol, just pure rectified spirit, purchased and processed by buy the tank loads from the same factories that supply perfumers and chemical makers. They just take the same stuff, run it through a copper still a few times, pass it through charcoal to get the esters out, and call it handmade. But uh, the reason why my friend was calling the whole category full of liars is because the, the pricing is uh, is deceptive, if not disrespectful. His, his word was disrespectful. Um, because the bottle, usually because the bottle is so researched and designed and advertised, costs more than the juice inside. It costs less to make vodka than any other spirit on the market, yet the premium brands charge a markup higher than any other spirit. And uh, because of the fancy bottle and the meaningless production trivia, they charge 35 bucks a liter, as opposed to our friend uh, Gavori here at 28 bucks for a 1.75. So uh, David Lynch seems to agree with my friend and uh, the craft spirits community that if you're going to go ahead and drink vodka, go with the New York Times taste test, go with Sarah Palmer, buy your Smirnoff or drink your Gavori like uh, Diane here. It's going to taste just as good anyway. It's going to save you an awful lot of money, certainly in the quantities that Sarah Palmer or Diane are drinking it. And uh, this has been Ken's Beverage Corner.
0: Ken, it certainly sounds like the fucks are at it again. The
1: fucks, Jr.
0: are at it again. <laughs> uh, right. So uh, Diane gets a text. Uh, it says Las Vegas, and she responds, "They haven't asked yet."
3: Yeah, and, and when she pulls out her phone here, we we distinctly see the red and the yellow on her phone. Callers. Callers. And the, the focus on her taking the olive out of the martini seems deliberate. I mean, the olive is, of course, green and with, on the outside and with the pimento in it, it's, it's red on the inside. Close. Close. And that's very much how Diane's being portrayed to be here, right? Red, uh, sinister on the inside, yeah, uh, but of the portraying herself as green no, and benevolent ahead, yeah, on the yeah, outside. Go ahead.
1: She sucks on the olives and discards it, much to my wife, the martini drinker's great chagrin. Um, But, uh, Kyle, I wanted to ask a follow-up question about the bracelets, though, because she's taken the bracelets off here. The red, and I can't quite tell if it's copper or sort of Garmin Bosia-colored yellow bracelet and put them on the bar. Do you attach any significance to when she's wearing them or not wearing them? Right, right.
3: I, I I do, but I if you don't mind, I'd kinda like to get into that a little bit later because I think it will be clearer as we see her return to the bar and some of the changes between this scene and that
2: scene. I was just gonna say I was reminded oh, cool. uh when she got this text that I don't think we've seen Doppelcooper since episode nine. You know, and I, I thought about it later with, with Chantal. It's been a really long time. Yeah. Uh, since we've seen him, so yeah,
1: yeah, very little McLaughlin. There
2: really
3: is, episode. and he literally doesn't I think, speak. I think a to give him that episode. starring
2: Kyle McLaughlin credit, they just right. had to you know work him in somehow, and so that's why, like, we got this right. like this <laughs> catch scene that didn't work. We'll throw that in there. So yeah, right. <laughs> they also filmed the
1: catch scene in uh, Monaco and Luxembourg for the tax credits.
0: <laughs> so uh, we'll keep moving along, so we can get to Kyle's later point uh, about Diane. Um, the next scene is at the Great Northern Hotel. Uh, not really a lot here going on other than Frank Truman is there. He's introduced by Beverly to Ben Horn. The sheriff is there to tell him that that his, son, or his grandson, uh, Richard Horn, killed that boy and attacked and tried to kill Miriam, the only witness. Miriam, it turns out, is a nursery school teacher with no insurance. Uh, the working class is getting screwed again. Uh, she is... I assume as a nursery school teacher, she, she works at like a private preschool, uh, whether she's private or public, she's, you know, obviously not getting the benefits yeah. that, you know, one in a community would want, you know, people who are taking care of our children to get, uh, and she's in the in, uh, intensive care unit. She needs an operation. Uh, Ben makes some noise about Richard never being right. Having had run-ins with the law in particular with Harry, not with Frank. And he said that he lost contact with Ben after Ben, uh, after he he caught, Ben lost contact with Richard, after Ben stopped giving him money, um, like that's sort of true. Although you know Ben doesn't say anything about the home invasion of you know Sylvia, his presumed ex-wife, by Richard. He asks about Harry's health. Uh, he asks about Miriam and the boy's parents, and he was going to send Ben was going to send Harry uh, the key to the Great Northern. It turns out with Koopsky as a memento. But Frank t- notes the key and uh, notes that it's a coincidence that they just open up an investigation, a, a, an old case involving Agent Cooper. He takes the key. We've been waiting for this moment. I thought it would happen uh, differently, but this is the way it happens. Let's see. At, at the end of the scene, Beverly receives the command from Ben that they're going to take care of all of Miriam's care. Uh, and then he kind of waxes nostalgic about a secondhand Schwin bicycle that his parents gave him.
3: Uh, Yeah, the he when he's talking about the bicycle, uh, Jr. I think this was uh, in the notes that uh, you know he mentions that it was painted. His father painted it two shades of green, which I think is something we see come back uh, several times in this episode. Uh, you know, Of course, he's also sitting there at his uh, desk with the, the green desk lamp. He hands over the green hotel key. Um, he, he mentions when he's talking to Beverly about Miriam, although Frank mentions Miriam's last name, Ben forgets it. He says, I don't even remember, but Miriam called the hospital. They'll know who she is. And, and I think that's a clue to the fact that, uh, that Chad grabbed the wrong letter. I, I, I believe Jeff had pointed out a couple of episodes ago that the name on the letter Chad got was different. Different from the Miriam that's shown on the on the credits, and I think this kind of emphasizes this. Uh, this scene uh, took forever; was one of several scenes that took forever. But I, I kind of like the the sort of sweet yet off kilter nature of this. It's kind hearted, but it's awkward uh, between Ben and Frank. I mean, they've known each other a long time, but their their lives have diverged since they were kids. and And I really hope Frank is being shrewd here, because otherwise. It seems like he just spills the beans about quite a lot of stuff uh, to to Ben Horn, a, a guy who doesn't have the most sterling reputation and, and who at least theoretically could be willing to do something horrible uh, in defense of his grandson, given some of the horrible things that we know that he's done in the past. So uh, this seems like really open uh, of Frank to just go and tell him, oh, hey, we're, we're doing an investigation of Agent Cooper and uh, uh, your grandson uh, tried to kill the owner. Only witness to this horrible crime he committed. And she's in uh, ICU and is going to die if she doesn't get an operation that we want you to pay for. I mean, that seems to be a lot of information to give to a guy uh,
1: who, who might not be the most noble fella in town. Yeah. And in keeping with the Saturn that uh, Ben's grandson drives cobbled together from what looks like pieces of other Saturns and the Saturn in Sonny Jim's bedroom there's an image of Saturn in the painting behind Ben in uh, on, on the wall of his office which uh, is another insight that I gleaned from Twitter because I did not have it myself while I was watching the show um, well no I just think Kyle's point is right that this this scene goes on a really long time I did enjoy it and, and gave it a sort of a wide berth because I like these actors and they're doing a nice job I understand it's just, and it's got some nice sort of tender moments in it. I understand why Lynch would want to let a scene between these two venerable actors play out like this, but it does seem like a tendency of this episode that has caused a lot of people to feel negatively about it, including me, feel negatively about the episode, that he just lets these scenes spool out between two actors forever and ever and ever. It's like scenes from a soap opera. A lot of folks have mentioned Invitation to Love in, in conjunction of this, with this episode. And JR, you and I were texting about the, the Invitation to Love parallels earlier. Um, it's like that, except every, uh, retake or every bit that was done for coverage or every try at a new line read by an actor is just left in as a scene spools out forever and ever and ever. So these two say the same things to each other over and over, and we'll get to it again with Audrey briefly, and it gets to be kind of excruciating.
2: Yeah. And I, I think that that tendency kind of starts in this scene up to this point, I really liked this episode and thought that it moved quickly and it was had was a lot of really fascinating, fairly quick moving scenes. But I do think that tendency starts to move here and, and from. I thought it was interesting too that they, uh, Kyle talked about how Frank just kind of goes in there and spills the beans and gives a lot of information. Um, but then it seems like a lot of the uh, rest of the episode, as you said, is about these very long scenes uh, in which we. Don't get the information or action or movement that we might want, uh, but we do get a lot of other information that just confuses us. And so it seems like it's uh, a lot of the rest of the episode from this point seems to be about perversely withholding information, stalling things. Nice. Um, and I, 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 even in this scene, you you see that with you do get some information, but then all right, we find out that Richard is. Ben's grandson we already knew that Um, we don't quite get it spelled out for us who uh, you know uh, Richard's mother is we could maybe assume it's Audrey the possibility of my wild theory that it could be Donna Hayward is still alive though Uh, and we, we find out that Richard grew up without a father which I guess is an important bit of information but we don't find out anything else. Instead, we get his kind of like half-baked Citizen Kane reminiscence about his green schwin, you know. So that's um, two tone. Yeah. So 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 I, so I do think that kind of tendency to stall, slow things down, you know, perhaps Lynch indulge himself a bit, withhold information from us, starts in this scene.
1: Yeah, it does feel like we are the cat, and uh, Lynch is holding the ball of yarn, you know.
0: Yeah, you know, I think in this next scene, I saw people saying out there in the internet that David Lynch really wanted to let us know that he fucks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. As, <laughs> and
1: uh, as, as if the way that Christa Bell looks at him oh, in every yeah. scene is not tested, yes. right? It.
0: And I think I th- that's right. And uh, but but you know, Ken, the, he, like, he's married. He's he's been married for a while. Know, you still you I know. Still and think- she
1: referred to a boyfriend in an interview that I read of her, so I'm I'm wavering on that commitment. But man, those photos that you dug up and like, yeah. I don't yeah. know. I don't. I don't think. I da- I'm sure David Lynch has some sort of arrangement. Where how new the Christabel boyfriend situation is, I don't. Yeah, know. Perhaps a French arrangement.
0: Um Yeah. yeah. But I. I it, and I agree with. And we're going to talk about it. Like this scene to me, you know, clearly indicates that Gordon is going to die. Yes. Um, it is refreshing that he is not uh, sharing his fine Bordeaux in his room by himself with agent Tamara Preston, but rather, you know, with this very friendly French lady. Uh, but uh, I, but yeah, I mean, she, she, uh, she's a demon, right? She, 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 I I don't know. I, I, I clearly, I, I think she is in fact an emissary of the black lodge. Bad stuff is going to happen to Corden. Uh, so anyway, yeah, we're back at the Mayfair hotel and, uh, which is where Gordon and, and Albert stay throughout this episode. And he's telling like an old war story to this French woman in a red dress. And, uh, you know, Albert needs to talk to, to Gordon. Gordon needs to get rid of the French lady in, in the red dress. She proceeds to take three minutes to leave the room uh, after, you know, Gordon has already assured her that he's going to give her a call in the bar. It's not like she's going to be very far away. Uh, but she, you know, spends all this time adjusting her dress, uh, you know, adjusting her makeup as, like, weirdly, Gordon is imitating her as she vamps it up, uh, like puckering his lips, uh, which which did remind us of, of the Lil scene. Uh, but yeah, this whole scene was a mess. And I, I kind of stopped paying attention to it at some point.
3: Yeah, I will just say I'm worried about Cole. I mean, I, I definitely think you're right that uh, the Gordon yeah. is doomed. Uh, you got this huge emphasis on red with this woman. She straightens out the red dress. She touches up the red lipstick. She shows the red on the bottom of her shoes, making this the fourth consecutive episode to feature a woman wearing red heels. Cole, uh, and, and that just emphasizes to me that Gordon is a goner. Uh, with her, we have, once again, the juxtaposition of black with red. She puts a black sweater on over her red dress. The heels are red and black. And I, I think that signals uh, the impending doom of the evil red bringing about the black death through the dark fire on Hawk's map. So, yeah, I'm, I am more certain than ever that uh, Gordon is going to die before the end of Episode 18.
2: Yeah. yeah, I, I, I had a, a couple of things here. I actually found it, I guess, as you did, Jr. fairly excruciating and frustrating to watch the first time around. I rewatched the episode today and actually found it much funnier in the same way that I had the same reaction I did with the, the Wally Brando monologue, which uh, it seemed to go on forever. But then the second time around, I, I found it pretty funny. Uh, I was reminded of Gordon Cole saying, that's the type of girl to make you wish you spoke a little French uh, back at the double R in 1989. He's at least learned how to mispronounce, but you know, tree chic uh, as he pronounces it, he's learned a little bit of French. Uh, but when we first see this scene, you know, the, the woman sitting on the couch, it's really strange. Her face is right up beside. And, you know, Gordon's telling. I think, as you described it, Jared, sort of this Bureau of War story, like an old Western. The trap was set. They waited till midnight, and she's just staring up at him, hypnotized, almost. Uh, I read this as another one of these kind of meta commentaries. Uh, and the audience is kind of a zombie, glazed-eyed, dazed, waiting for Lynch to to tell us a story. Uh, so I'm, you know, w- whether that. Uh, what that says about Lynch's view of the audience. I'm not sure, but I I read that as a a similar kind of uh, thing. And, um, yeah, well, we could go back to it, but I, I guess I do join, uh, feel with you guys, uh, the same way that this does not bode well for Gordon. Uh, the last time that we saw someone this kind of head over heels, smitten on the verge of neglecting his investigative duties in Twin Peaks, was Agent Cooper with with Annie Blackburn. And we know yeah. how that turned out. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys as saying this makes me uh, fear for Gordon.
1: Right. Well, and to expand on the... Um, this guy fucks point that JR just made. And to go back to our sort of women in refrigerators watch, we've had a lot of women lately in sort of harridan mode, from Diane to uh, the sheriff's wife to the Audrey Horn that we're about to see. There's been a lot of women sort of heckling and hectoring uh, men. This one seems to be the exact opposite, right? Like perfectly compliant and pliant and adjusting her makeup and even the angle of her boobs and the dress to to cole and basically mute except for to utter a few little french words that are like fetishy for for gordon so uh it's it's right back to a depiction of a certain kind of powerless woman that i uh uh don't enjoy at all in this version of twin peaks so i thought i should probably point that out she's powerless
0: unless she's a succubus
1: well right your, your demon gloss does uh, does change things if that turns out to be true. but you know whether that will be revealed or not we have yet to see. So as of now I'm going with uh, with powerless. but yes, yeah, succubus would be cool. Yeah. I would take that. Uh,
0: yeah, so I think that's enough for this scene uh, again. Um, the next scene is like straight out of a Cohen brothers movie. Uh, it's it's Hutch and Chantal are. Uh, now on their first bad coop assigned mission, uh, we turn. Turns out that Hutch, who's perfectly willing to do some torture as necessary, or apparently not necessary at all, they're just supposed to kill the guy. But you know he he's a, he's very officious. He wants to he wants to make sure that all of Chantel's needs are met. Um, as we've noted before, they do have uh, an open polyamorous relationship, and I think that same kind of. You know, conscientious partner is, is, is coming through here on Hutch's part, but it turns out Chantel prefers Wendy's. Um, she's hungry. There's a Wendy's nearby. If they stop the torture of this warden, it's just going to take too much time. So, uh, it, Hutch, who is p- quite efficient, um, Pulls out a sniper rifle, rifle proceeds to get two good shots on the warden in the chest from behind. Uh, After the second shot is his son comes out, you know, screaming daddy, uh, and (laughs) says next stop Wendy's and they pull off. Yeah. It's, it's a good dark scene.
3: Yeah, there's, there's a lot of emphasis on fathers and sons in this episode. You've you got Ben talking about his father and and Richard's lack of one. you got Dougie playing catch with, or at least having catch played with him by Sonny Jim. And now we have this. So the the presence
1: or absence of a father is stressed uh, very heavily over the course of this episode. Yeah, I guess I thought it was a very rote scene. I didn't enjoy it very much. The banter between Chantal and Hutch is, is pretty enjoyable, but it's traumatic and, and fairly brutal. And I don't know why we need it. We could have just assumed that they bumped off the warden. We could have learned it from a a line of dialogue from the FBI later. just didn't seem necessary at all. And in an episode where so many long, drawn-out scenes are wasting our time, to have one in there that doesn't have the humor of the uh, Dougie playing catch scene or any plot value that I thought we needed seemed gratuitous as well. But I might have just already been cranky by this point in the episode, by (laughs) the way the the scene started to drag, you know?
0: I... I I bet the next scene made you even crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do think Fine, like, I do think there's a certain kind of discreet, intense Garmin Bosia deposit that's made when you, you know, shoot a father in front of their son like that. And I, yeah. I wonder if that's it's it's really shocking, uh, not quite as much as the mother seeing their son, you know, hit by a truck, but that's what it the scene kind of made me think of.
1: Yeah, but I mean, it sort of brings yeah. us back to the discussion we have every week about you know where are the robins? You know, we we keep getting that over and over and over again, and at this point, it seems too late to hope that the good guys who are literally just stuck in a hotel for the entirety of this episode uh, are ever going to show up or make any progress. But I'll have a broader yeah. final thought about that later,
2: right? Yeah, I mean, and JR, you know, mentioned you know this kid going to be you know, watching his his father, the Warden, get shot in front of him is going to be traumatized for life. That was, I guess, one justification I did find for this scene was it seemed like in Sarah Palmer especially, uh, we saw this representation of trauma, its lingering impact, you know, and kind of how it might never go away. So perhaps that and um, yeah, I'm sure we, we see other traumatized people as well in this episode. But that was one way I, I, I thought about it. You're right. I mean, it definitely could have. We could have moved along. The real action is going to be in Vegas. But uh, we did, we did see this scene. So
0: yeah, we go to the American Hindu Kush, uh, where we get another Doctor Amp transmission. Uh, it's it's all the same now, right? It's multinational corporations. It's by the shovel. The fucks are at it again our precious bodily fluids, uh, you know, liberty, blah, blah, blah. Your elected officials are parasites and they're ass-fucking you or whatever. Nadine is enthralled as always. She's drinking um, a vanilla-colored milkshake or something. And Jeff, you noted something about his uh, Dr. Amp's proclamation that the ninth level of hell will welcome you to the multinationals or their... Enabling representatives or whatever.
2: Yeah, well, we go from, you know, the ninth level of hell and then we get this jump cut, you know, to Audrey Horn, you know, out of nowhere. Uh, And uh, just between, you know, the two scenes, that jump cut, you know, to what looks to be a ninth level of of marital hell that Audrey's existing in. But just a little bit about Dante and the ninth circle of hell, uh, which is called Cassidus. That's the very, very center of hell. uh, And it is a frozen... Uh, lake of ice and it's where the traitorous uh, are imprisoned uh are damned and so you get people there you know like judas iscariot at the very center of the lake lucifer you get traitorous popes etc and they're kind of i guess ranked or punished according to some betrayed sort of their guests lords families communities etc uh and as i said at the very center of hell, of the night circle of hell we have lucifer Uh, who betrayed God. And then most interestingly for Twin Peaks, though, in the third round of the Ninth Circle, which is called Ptolemaea, um, there's Fra Alberigo, um, who betrayed his dinner guests, who are his opponents at this kind of Red Wedding-style banquet. Um, And I couldn't find my copy of the Inferno, so I'm going to quote from Wikipedia here. But Alberigo explains that often um, when a person... Commits this sort of treachery, um, a living person's soul falls to Ptolemaea to this third round of the night circle of hell before he dies, and then on Earth a demon inhabits the body until the body's natural death. So, if you commit this this act of treachery, which Dante deems worse than any other sin, your soul will go down to hell, and then on Earth a demon will inhabit your body until that body dies. That sounds very familiar uh, for Twin Peaks. So maybe it's not you know that's something where the ninth level of hell that's become you know a cliche you know kind of a, on some level, but maybe there's there's more to it uh, than uh, first appears. Well,
0: you know, Jeff, if I recall my uh, Dante, I believe that near the center with Lucifer is Brutus, uh, who's in the ninth circle yeah. for betraying his friend Julius Caesar. That calls yeah. to mind uh, for stabbing him. In fact. That certainly calls to mind, for me, Wyndham Earl, who stabbed his good friend, uh, Dale Cooper, uh, and ended up uh, in the underworld uh, after that, anyway.
1: Jeff, can I just ask, were Alberigo's guests at this banquet, were they his bitter enemies and business rivals? (laughs) (laughs) They absolutely were, Yes.
2: They really no. That's that would be a very apt description of them. That's and, great. Yes. Well,
3: then Duncan Todd should have just invited Dougie to dinner. He could have eliminated all the middlemen and gotten this taken care of.
0: You know, and it also calls to mind that story of the owls from the Access Guide. Remember the owl who? Oh yeah, convinced his
1: with the uh, yeah, who, the mother in law. She
0: she, she she yeah
1: yeah with the family jealousy right. right? That's yeah. right. He
0: got the he got the 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 mother in law to turn into a owl or. The husband, I can't remember, but there was a betrayal involved eating, you know, intestines versus other kinds of, of meat. And uh, the result was that the husband and wife ended up as skinwalking owl killers. So, And then one of them married a Renault. That's right. Yeah, that's right. They did. They intermarried into the Renault family. Yeah.
1: Yeah. This is uh, some pretty good content to have mined out of a Dr. Amp sequence that was literally cut and pasted in in pieces, right? It's <laughs> actual repetitive, repeated right. footage of like the commercial <laughs> parts that Lynch used yes. again. I'm, I'm sort of impressed we got this much out of it.
0: Well, now what may be the most divisive scene of this episode? We finally, Ugh. finally get Audrey Horn. Um, uh, when I watched this scene for the first time, I was watching the show for the first time on a high definition television instead of my laptop. And I think that it may not be a particularly good high definition television because the quality of the digital video was so bad, so garish and difficult to see that like watching this scene, I actually thought that the scene was itself a scene of Audrey rehearsing lines for like community dinner theater. Uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when when I watched it the second time on my computer and it was a little bit warmer, it wasn't as harsh, uh, I was able to get through it uh, much easier. But it's a really long and weird scene. Uh, we, we, we really find out very, very little uh, other than Audrey is married to, in a contractual sense, if none other, to a, a small person named Charlie, who has a lot of paperwork, a lot of deadline. He wants his lawyer to look over the papers that Audrey gave him, presumably divorce papers. Uh, He he kept saying that he's tired. She wants to go out to the roadhouse, uh, even though she thinks he probably won't be there. It, It turns out that he person is somebody named Billy. For a while, I thought that Billy was referring to Richard and it's like some sort of weird nickname. I can only hope that's not the case because it turns out Audrey is in love with and is fucking Billy. Um, Billy can't stand the roadhouse. Uh, Billy may be married to Tina. Tina was apparently the last person to see Billy, but that's unclear because according to Chuck, who's certifiable and who stole Billy's truck last week, Billy got the truck Back the same day though, and he didn't press charges. Audrey, it turns out, cannot stand Tina. Uh, that may be because Charlie and Tina are involved. Because Charlie says he'll pretend Audrey isn't around when he calls Tina. Are you confused yet? Yeah. Uh, it really, it really reminded me of the scene in Buckhorn. Yes. Of uh, the guy, uh, you know, with with all these figures that we didn't know about and and probably will never hear of again. Finally, Charlie does call Tina, and there's a long exchange about Billy. Audrey makes these weird impotent gesticulations staring at each other and it turns out Charlie reveals nothing. Audrey yells I mean I I got the sense because of the reference to the truck and calling the sheriff that this has to do with the Richard Horn murder right uh, the truck the truck that Andy went to go follow up with at the place of the farmers but uh, I don't know I, I I haven't got much here.
1: Yeah, I've, I've got a few things besides, you know, searing hatred for what they've done to, uh, my beloved Audrey, uh, and, and for this endlessly repetitive scene, but, uh, it does have this quality that Jr. was describing to it of sort of community theater and of the lines being repeated over and over and over again and weird sort of um, line reads and intonations and between that and the endless repetition of I'm so tired by Charlie I kept thinking of Greg Sestero's character in the Tommy Wiseau classic The Room who's always like I'm so tired I just saw you what are you talking about when he's trying to pursue his affair with Wiseau's uh, fiance but um but yeah, the scene, it's in the tradition of all of these hectoring women I mentioned earlier. It's another in a sequence of depressing futures for all of these characters that we used to care about, particularly female characters. And it does seem like, like I was saying with the cat and the ball of yarn, like it's a deliberate um, foiling of our expectations. Like, it's its a deliberate comment on what we want. And I know a lot of people have said, well, it's invitation to love and it's soap opera-ish, but it's its boring and it's depressing and it goes on forever and it involves a character we've all been waiting to see for 12 episodes in a miserable situation that isn't even interesting to look at. Um, But – Having said all that, I will say uh, he keeps saying Charlie keeps saying, "You know, I don't have a crystal ball, Audrey," as though she literally thinks he has a crystal ball, and he does have a tiny crystal ball sitting amongst <laughs> the many, many papers and piles of ancient paperwork technology on his desk, uh, which I sort of enjoy. Um, and I, I did start thinking about this because I watched this whole thing through twice last night, and it was fairly excruciating. If you had just shown me this scene, if I'd seen nothing of the new Twin Peaks, and I guess nothing of the old Twin Peaks, and you. just showed me this scene, I would have been like, this is insane, and like nothing else on television, I have to see the rest of it immediately. (laughs) Like, I don't know what the fuck this is. I think that it's excruciating to look at in ways, but it's so bizarre and so off-kilter. I must have it all, right? So, (laughs) it has that quality where, like, the things that we've seen have been so weird and interesting and great in many ways that when we get things that are just weird and don't work, uh, we're we're even more put off. But man… Man, it's tough.
0: Kyle, do you have some thoughts on color?
3: Yeah, there are, uh, again, like Diane, like the French woman, Audrey's wearing a combination of red and black. When we first see her, she's standing. She's got a red jacket over her arm, wearing a a black dress. Uh, she's next to this ornate green bowl looking thing on the mantle. She's got a yellow light behind her. Uh, she mentions that she's been having dreams, which we learned from Jim Belushi in the previous episode. Uh, those still matter in Twin Peaks. And, and the one takeaway, you know, we've got, we got Charlie, we got Chuck, we got Paul, we got Tina, we got papers. We got a contract. We don't have any explanation for much of it. Uh, and and Charlie and Chuck, presumably two guys both named Charles, contract also a set of papers that you'd want your lawyer to look over before you signed it. So this is just this completely baffling rapid fire barrage. And at the, f- at the point at which it appears someone actually has useful information to provide, he refuses to provide it. So uh, really, the only thing that I <laughs> yeah. can take away from this is I'm pretty sure that the farm the guy who is credited as the farmer is billy and who's the same billy that bing was looking for at the double r diner later that episode that we haven't heard from since although i have no idea if time-wise it's only been 2 days surely it's been more than 2 days but i can't i can't back that up mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it does, yeah. does seem to be that Billy. I mean, Adrian pointed that out to me right away. She was like, oh, yeah, somebody was looking for Billy at the double R. So I assumed that was the same one when the people all changed over. But maybe they all changed over into uh, Suck You or into <laughs> the other characters right. that we're never going to know or care right. about from the rest of these Maybe, maybe those were – Or do the people who keep showing up. Maybe those people were, were Chuck yeah. and Paul and Tina. Right. Or the people that everybody at the Roadhouse shows up at the Roadhouse to talk about but we never right. see. Right. Uh-uh. But did somebody go back and look? I didn't go back and look. Or does somebody remember? Uh, Audrey says she dreamed Billy was bleeding from the nose and mouth, and dreams sometimes harken a truth. Yeah. Is that specific yeah. phrasing from Coop? Did she get that from the original series?
3: I don't think. Yeah, I don't think exactly, it is either. But I mean, I could be wrong. To- I don't remember him saying that yeah. precisely. Certainly that point, but I don't know that he used those words. But you're right. It is. It is an yeah. interesting phrase because it's. It's. It's very out of place with every other piece of dialogue in this scene.
1: Yeah, it's it's old Cooper esque, but I, I couldn't recall him saying that specifically either.
2: But you know, I was I also thought you know, yeah, Billy's probably the farmer who and the truck Richard stole. Billy's missing, maybe dead, probably killed, perhaps by Richard, who is probably Audrey's son. So perhaps one of the reasons why Charlie as I called it goes full silencio uh, at the end of this scene <laughs> is that he knows that Audrey's son killed her lover and he's trying to figure out how to break that to her, you know, so that might give some rationale to the scene, but really why is this so complicated? Who are all these people? Uh, I was calling this, you know, maybe the most baffling kind of frustrating sequence uh, in Twin Peaks, since either s- what I senior Drew cups room service tango in the season two premiere, or Lloyd Miffler's bank vault shuffle in Audrey's last scene in the se- uh, in the series before this, the season two finale. But both those sequences were, were funnier, more bizarre, more oh, amusing, yeah. uh, and I, I think you know we we could all probably identify on some level with Audrey saying, "Just tell us already what you know, Charlie, Tina." uh at this point and what i was i was also just i mean on a, a second rewatch what actually did make me laugh was just i mean he the rotary phone <laughs> like really we watched to see you know like he still has a rotary phone and we had to watch him dial it and it was uh that was and an a Rolodex, yeah rolodex and yeah all this kind of obsolete Paper technology rings. and I, ha- I mean, I haven't been kind of on board exactly with the mini burgeoning alternate timeline, you know, kind of theories. Uh, this is all going to turn out like Westworld or something. Um, I, I do think it's justified in the um, uh, the double R sequence, which is directly tied to this. We mentioned where the Where's Billy scene where there is a quick cut, you know, kind of um, after that. But uh, it's... Did seem like you know there's something out of place and strange, and just in terms of of technology uh, in this scene, uh, and the one other little thing I did note is that the only – I was fascinated this room with all these books uh, and, you know, uh, what exactly Charlie's profession was. Uh, the only book I could actually make out right next to Audrey on the bookshelf next to her was a book by T.S. Eliot, who was, of course, the high modernist priest of, of marital misery. So there you go.
4: <laughs> yeah.
1: Jeff, I would watch the Bank Vault sequence from Audrey's Occupy Twin Peaks moment a hundred times before I would watch this scene again. And yeah. and the Westworld comparison has me, like, spiraling into depression. Like, uh, we talked about how superior this show is to Game of Thrones on the whole. But uh, compared to this program, Westworld is like nursery school. Like, Westworld is unbelievably yeah. low-grade television compared to this. It's right. just well, people
2: flailing people just- around just because that alternate timeline theory did play out in Westworld, you know, I think people are, you know, think it's going to play out again in Twin Peaks. And I mean, even if it does, it's going to do it in a more, just such a bizarre, non-rational way. We wouldn't even be able to explain it.
1: Yeah. And of course it panned out exactly that way in Westworld. There was a Nolan involved. I mean,
0: (laughs) Uh, so the second to last scene after this scene about which enough has been said is at the Buckhorn hotel, uh, Diane has arrived at the bar, which is closing, but presumably she's such a good and reliable customer over her very short stay. uh, She's already getting drinks after they've closed. Um, And and Kyle, I think you may have a lot to say about the scene that we're all waiting to hear about.
3: Okay. First of all, we start out with with vacuuming, and at least it wasn't sweeping because in this in this episode we would have expected like an hour and a half of sweeping while staring silently at Jacques Renault. But anyway, um,
2: <laughs> I was kind of disappointed we actually didn't get more vacuuming. Yeah, no, that's that right. You know, I thought like we might get to see him va- va- vacuum the entire like first floor of the hotel. Well, or,
3: no, but know, but, so, but the guy the guy sweeping didn't finish either. So you know, th- there's just there's just Crappy exactly. cleanup crews all throughout this show. Anyway, they're uh, the uh, they red and black curtains and yellow lights visible behind the vacuuming. Uh, Diane comes in. She's she's now wearing a, a green top. She's wearing a green sweater. Same red and yellow bracelets. She's got her American spirits in the uh, as I now know in the yellow carton. Uh, and as we see emphasized in the the flashback, she's wearing the same green sweater that she was wearing uh, when she was reading the coordinates off the picture of Ruth's arm. Uh, She's got her green, yellow, and red handbag that we saw before. Uh, she's wearing yellow earrings, which I hadn't noticed before. And when she pulls out her phone this time in the lighting, uh, it's, it's now evening instead of daytime. So it looks more green than yellow. And when she's holding this greenish phone up in front of her green sweater, there are two shades of green, like with Ben Horn's bicycle. Uh, so what does all this mean? Um, maybe Diane's switching sides. Uh, maybe there are two Dianes. We've got the Saint Diane and the cabaret singer Diane Pulganger, but, but I think there's a third option, and this is this is what I've been mulling over throughout the day today. All right, when Albert and Gordon go to see Diane in Part 7, she's clearly very hardened and embittered, and then she meets Doppel Cooper later in that episode, and it makes it very apparent that she was genuinely traumatized by an experience uh, with the man she thought was Dale Cooper the last time they met. Uh, in each of those cases, though, whether she's angry or she's or she's wounded, uh, she minces no words. She comes out and says exactly whatever it is that she's feeling. Uh, and we don't see Diane again until part nine. And by that time, she's completely changed. Now she's playing it close to the vest. She's keeping her thoughts to herself. She's engaging in text exchanges with Doppel Cooper that make it more and more apparent that she's in league with him. And Diane's complete reversal from obnoxiously open to cagily closed is even hinted at by the fact that we no longer hear her dropping F-bombs on her colleagues. The last couple of times, it's actually been Albert who said, yeah, 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 I know, F you, Albert. You know, she hasn't actually even been the one to say it. So what changed? between the Diane we knew in Part 6 and 7 and the Diane that, that that we knew then who was wounded and truthful and the Diane from Part 9 forward uh, who's been deceptive and calculating. Well, obviously what happened between Episode 7 and, and Episode 9 was Episode 8. Uh, and most of that took place in the 40s and 50s, so it doesn't have anything to do with Diane. Uh, but the one modern moment from Part 8 was crucial. Doppelcooper was shot, and JR, as you've noted uh, routinely from that time, it appeared that Bob didn't just show up, but that he was actually removed from the Bad Dale. So, if Bob is no longer with Doppelcooper, where is he? And I think that after the Woodsman took Bob out of Bad Coop, Diane became Bob's new host. It explains Diane's apparent ability to see the Woodsman approaching Detective Mackley's car in part 11. It explains her subsequent uncertainty about what she apparently clearly saw. It explains why Doppelcooper Cooper begins texting her after he returns from the dead. More to the point, it explains why she would text him back after their encounter at the jail in South Dakota. Uh, because it's not Doppelcooper Cooper and Diane texting, it's Doppel Cooper and Bob. It explains her complete change of personality. And because we know from Doppelcooper's comment in the prison cell and from Bob's description that Leland was a babe in the woods, that Bob's host can be unsure of or even oblivious to his presence, it also explains why she seems sometimes to vacillate between identities. And in fact, it even appears that her fashion sense is impacted by her demonic possession because the real Diane is a flashy dresser. She's unafraid to show off boldly with attention getting red. But Bob, who's preferring to remain concealed and anonymous, hides behind more conservative clothing that camouflages him beneath this reassuring green. So I think while we were watching the Nine Inch Nails in the roadhouse, Bob was possessing Diane.
0: That's great. Wow. That's great. But doesn't Bob
1: need sort of proximity? Doesn't he need to be near somebody in order to sort of possess them? Have we seen him leap the kind of distance that we're talking about? I think the woodsman took him.
0: Yeah. He took the Woodsman Express. Oh,
1: I see. Uh, the Woodsman Express. I see. Yeah, but Evil Cooper continues to be evil. He continues to do Bob-like things. I mean, I still think they left Bob inside him, so I know I'm on the minority there.
0: But, but Evil he's, Cooper he still, was already evil. He, yeah, because he, he, was, was, he, was, he was
3: the doppelganger. He was Cooper's doppelganger anyway, so he was already the evil guy um, with or without Bob. Bob just makes him worse.
0: Other things going on in the scene... Diane uses her phone to peg uh, the coordinates on Ruth's arm as pointing to twin peaks. yeah, I mean I
2: was the the most interesting thing again, I think this I saw it a couple of places, but um, I think one of our listeners pointed out as well this theory that a lot of people have had in the last couple weeks that Diane might be some sort of a doppelganger. I do think there's that really interesting moment. Uh, in Buckhorn, when the you know, the portal opens up, where we do see the same scene. I think Gordon sees a woodsman in this way, but then we see it from Diane's point of view. It's reversed almost exactly, which yeah. brings to you know, mind the you know year of very, you know, what I mean, and the kind of reversal right. and you know uh, of of what hap- what seems to be happening with. Uh, the Black Lodge spirits, but that's—I'm still trying to wrap my head around Kyle's <laughs> Sorry, theory. It, it did not mean does that <laughs> account for no, no. It's it's good. It does it does account for uh, a, a lot of, of different things. And and uh, you know, as I was kind of saying earlier, I mean, you know, Diane still, you know, when I was talking about the Let's Rock, I mean, she is probably the most you know ambiguous character, uh, in the one that I am having the most trouble uh, wrapping my head around her exact intentions or whose side she's on. So perhaps being uh, there being two of her or one that kind of changed in a way would, would account for, for some of that. But, yeah, she's in a, a series full of fairly ambiguous characters at times. She's, she's the most uh, ambiguous one for me. The other thing I was going to say, this sequence kind of ends as she kind of zeroes in on Twin Peaks, and I couldn't figure out what exactly coordinates plus two meant or how she was figuring this out. And I was also unclear if, you know, Twin Peaks was, uh, a different, uh, location from what actually was on Ruth Davenport's arm. And if this was, she's being set up in a way by Gordon and Albert. Uh, but anyway, she somehow gets to coordinates plus two, uh, on, on her phone. But the, then there's this interesting resonance or hum on the soundtrack. And, uh, as she's found Twin Peaks and that, uh, was reminiscent of the hum we've been hearing uh, in the walls yeah. of the Great Northern. And so I was kind of wondering if uh, there might be some further resonance reverberation as, as when Diane or, or all of the rest of our characters get uh, into to Twin Peaks.
1: Yeah, there's definitely a duality to the character now. And I I think the appeal of your theory, Kyle, is that it seems to explain how she's shifted in demeanor and approach. And I really like that. I like the the notion that there's a reason why she isn't so abrasive now. And um, I mean, it, there's no reason I can tell why they divulge so many details about the FBI investigation to right. her. And I just, just sort of assumed that the duality had to do with her being in this double agent role that she's trying to ingratiate herself and everything but one of the ways in which I thought she was noticeably different in this episode was that she was legitimately appreciative that the bartender left the bar open for her and just handed her a a vodka on the rocks in her last bar scene Um, but you know that, that dovetails with her being sort of a different kind of person now than she was when we met her but it doesn't match up with her being Bob now unless you know she's in control of herself then but i I don't know. it's it's a little tough to to wrap my head around. But again, I have sort of a different take on where Bad Cooper is at. so that my that's my obstacle as well. So no, fair enough. It's, it's fascinating though. It's a nice bombshell for the for the end of the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank definitely. you.
0: Yeah. so the Chromatics have joined all Revoir Simone as being a band that has played the Roadhouse twice in Twin Peaks, The Return. Uh, Kyle, you had some thoughts on some lights and color, color. in this last scene. Just real quick,
3: uh, again, as you mentioned, the chromatics, so we should have known color was going to matter, but there, there's, there are four lights out in front of the roadhouse uh, and three, only three of them are illuminated, and, and that called attention to the, the idea in my mind that, uh, it looks like in this episode, all the doubles and the triples are turning into quadruples. We get the second appearance of a four-person band. We get the deputizing of Diane, which turns this cadre of three FBI agents into a foursome, uh, and the addition of black, the, the color of death to the red, yellow, green triad, uh, in the wake of Hawk's map revelation in the previous part, bumps the color scheme up from three to four. And interestingly enough, that happens in part 12, which is a number that is evenly divisible by two, by three, and by four.
0: The chromatics are playing in the background, and the foreground is a conversation in a booth uh, between characters that we've never seen before about a bunch of characters that we've never seen or heard of before. Um, When I watched this the first time, I, I was thinking to myself, well, this is weird. It's almost like Invitation to Love is no longer a TV series it's just a plot line in the show. Uh, a bunch of characters that we never see about never see or talk about again. And um but the more that I think about it it just pisses me off I even have to recap this stuff. Uh <laughs> I'm, not, <laughs> don't. I'm not. I'm don't. not. It's, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Don't. I'm don't want about Clark or Angela. And, and what or about Mary. Clark? People Mary, need to know. Trick. Fuck no. Trick. I thought Trick, the only thing about Trick I will say is it. I thought he was Mike. I thought, he was, I, thought, I, thought, I thought he was Mike, Bobby's old friend, uh, but, but it turns out he's not.
1: I thought that too for a second. I, my whole synopsis of this nonsense is summed up by Jeff's comment from our show notes uh, that he put into the Audrey scene and then toned down when he made the comment on the air, which is really, though, who the fuck are all these people? Like, Jeff, that was perfect. That's all, that's all you need.
0: That's it. I'm done. Oh. You guys that you guys have anything you want to say uh, more on this episode go ahead. I will say okay
2: all right so so, tr- so 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 trick he did get run off the road. His hand was shaking. I don't think it was due to contact with a lot spirit, but I was curious about who ran trick off the road. I don't know Richard, bad coop. And then another part of me was like, why why should I care? And and who the fuck are all these people? But anyway, uh, that was, I mean, perhaps one redeeming theme uh, thing from this scene is that someone, you know, almost ran Trick off the road. But uh, I I was trying to salvage this scene, I guess, also. And I was, you know, thinking of the first couple of Roadhouse scenes. Uh, You know, those seemed like they did become important later on in terms of. We saw Red and Shelley, you know, uh, and then Richard obviously became uh, important. But, uh, you know, at least none of these people had armpit rash tattoos, or armpit rashes. That's
1: the thing, like that's never going to come back, the armpit rash. So, this is my final thoughts question. I think that these scenes are not just this season's version of Invitation to Love. I think they're training us for the fact that we have six episodes left to go, and there are going to be more mysteries raised and more pointless characters introduced than there is going to be resolution of plot points. The fact that we are not fully in downhill mode at this point towards resolution of the mysteries, like, what moved the plot forward in this episode? uh towards resolution of any mystery the text messages a couple of text messages in the hotel right and hey hey, hey not much else
0: sheriff got right? the key the,
1: the sheriff talking yeah. to ben yeah yep sheriff Diane, got the key.
3: diane's That's right. Right. triangulating so, on know, twin peaks uh, uh albert and and gordon have gotten their first uh tip to to look at las vegas i mean they they have no clue that there's anything going on in las vegas of of interest to them until this episode
1: Right, I was counting both of those as text okay, fair messages. Fair enough, so, and we know what that and we is. you know. So yeah, the we, d- we did. Good. <laughs> yes, well, under the under the Kyle Unified Theory 2.0, yes.
2: Um, but <laughs> we did find out for the first time in 25 years what exactly Blue right. Rose was. A little bit of backstory on that in the exposition. Uh, Tammy became a member of the Blue Rose you know, Task Force. Okay. Well, nobody cares you know, about that. And but then, the, the yeah. Blue Rose,
1: that's fan Tr- service. That's not plot. Trick is all, wearing, right? trick is wearing it's, one it's...
3: green shirt over another green shirt. So like Ben Horn's bike, he's two shades of green. Don't discount that. Okay. Somebody's right. off but their meds and having dreams. She's, is... all, she's having dreams. She's off her meds. Without chemicals, she points. So uh, it's, it's going to add up. It's all going to come together. Don't, don't you lose hope.
1: Okay, but it's not. That's... <laughs> That's my point. There's six hours left. And so I just want to know when, when I turn out to be right about this and when we're watching episode uh, 18. And in episode 18, there was a roadhouse scene in which people mention a whole bunch of other characters nobody's ever heard of before. And regular Cooper has never come back. And nobody has solved any of the underlying mysteries. And uh, Buckhorn and Las Vegas and Twin Peaks are never brought together, right? How, how are people going to react? Is, how much is your enjoyment of this season contingent on Lynch wrapping up some or all of this because i'm i'm increasingly of the belief that he's going to wrap up approximately none
3: yeah you
2: i think he wants you to i think he wants you to feel that way and then i think he was kind of slowing us down and purposely toying with us uh this episode and withholding information but it it does have a different feel to me from the kind of open-ended um mystery that we got you know in, in the original run kind of twin peaks um it does seem like it opens up in some ways, but I still sort of sense that you you have to be slow with it. You have to be, you have to let it take its time and be patient. But I, I I I think that not everything is going to be tied up in any way. I don't think it ever really is in any of Lynch's work, but I do think especially for, you know, Cooper, um, uh, you know Cooper, Bad Cooper, uh, Laura. Especially, I think we're going to get some sort of some sort of resolution, and and some of these things will be tied up. But I sort of feel like this episode was Lynch indulging himself, uh, withholding right. things, toying with us, as you said uh, a bit. Uh, so yeah, Wait,
1: but no, Hannah, frustrating. But you're, us. But you're fighting and, the hypo
0: though. The, you, the hypo you may is be Cassandra. You may be right. You may be right. But I have three yeah. things. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the three things are first. What you describe or predict would be wholly inconsistent with, and I think unsatisfying to Mark Frost, whose influence we've all, I think, undervalued. Right. Se- second, right. second, right. Mm-hmm. David Lynch I agree. loves I totally agree. and cares about these characters in this place. And I don't think, I, I don't, I'm not saying that we're going to see the original Coop back. We may not see original Coop back, and I'm personally fine with that. But I don't think we're going to end up with just a bunch of bullshit people sitting in the roadhouse talking about people we've never heard of before at the final part of the return. And and third, as long as they don't up, end up in heaven, I'll be fine.
4: Okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, and I th- the third point is sort of an actual answer to my question. The first two sound like things that, uh, folks said when we were talking about what to expect from the series at the beginning, right? The, that there's going to be Mark Frost and David Lynch really loves these characters. So we're going to have the bottle of Menti shuffle jazz and we're going to have some enjoying, enjoyable moments with old friends in Twin Peaks, right? And it turned out that it was actually a lot more like Inland Empire plus frog bugs, right? And as much as I love the frog bugs and the, and episode eight was a completely brilliant episode of television it just hasn't been anything that sort of uh puts uh check marks into boxes and develops a a murder mystery and uh i'm not trying to decry that i'm fine with that i'm mr plot is so bourgeois my expectations were freed up by episode eight like it's it's fine with me regardless i just want to know to what extent everybody else on the podcast will be frustrated if at all if what we have in this episode is what the rest of the series is like in terms of momentum and plot development
2: yeah i I I just don't think the rest of the series has been like this. It sort of seems like we have this kind of back and forth and things kind of slow down, and the the movement of it is is odd. And you'll have an episode like the last one in which, you know, things moved really, really quickly. Exactly. I was just
0: thinking about, yeah, episode 11 and the box and the cherry pie. I mean, that, yeah, that things really moved in that episode. That's true. And I think it's great.
1: I absolutely agree with that about the momentum of episode 11, and I liked that episode, you know, slightly more, probably as a byproduct of that. But really, we also liked episode 11 more because it introduced a whole bunch of new stuff with characters we liked, like the Mitchums. It opened up as many things as it closed, just like every single episode has, really. So I just just don't think there's time left to do it, unless it starts looking like this new season of Game of Thrones, where it's just like, you all wanted this battle, here it is in two minutes. Yeah, I I don't... You know?
2: I'd also like to say the the plot did advance in that Jerry Horn did right. get out of the woods. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, yes, thank God. Yeah,
1: and I, I don't think they're going to tie up every
3: single l- loose end. Uh, I, I do think we're going to get good Coop back. I just think it's going to be in the last 15 minutes of episode 18. Uh, and, and frankly, I think when that happens, the collective Dale-gasm is going to melt the internet as as people are just happy to see him again. And honestly, given what I have lived with, with the previous 20-odd years, 26 Years uh, since uh, since that night in 1991 that I saw what I thought was the end of the show and and was asked how's Annie how's Annie how's Annie I, I I'm probably going to be okay with what we get because it will it will not piss me off as badly as that did um, but I, I mean I think with this one we had a slow moving episode. It's it's much more about setup than payoff, and I'll grant you that a good bit of the setups aren't going to get paid off. But I do think there are these these themes, these ideas, these these recurrent notions that that go through there that that make it interesting, which is why people still care about it uh, twenty five years later. You know, on this one we've got um, you know we've got these characters like Carl and Dougie and Doctor Amp and Jerry Horn and and Hutch uh, who are all they're about taking the direct approach. Uh, you know, we even have Chantal. Telling Hutch overtly, don't overthink it. You you were sent here with a mission. You were you were sent to shoot this guy. Don't worry about torturing him. Just shoot the guy. You know, just do it. Don't examine matters in this calculating way. And then we have all these other guys who are playing these mind games, uh, playing it close to the vest, feeling one another out. They're maneuvering about the chessboard, and it may never come to resolution. But you know, you you don't really know what they're doing and why. You know, it gives us the scenes with Ben Horn and Frank Truman, with with Hawk and Sarah Palmer, with Audrey and Charlie, with Diane and the FBI agents. And we don't ever really know what these people are about. And yeah, maybe we're all Dougie. Maybe David Lynch is the the Deputy Hawk or the Charlie uh, not telling us the stuff that that we want to know. And it's frustrating. And, and I'm just not so sure that Chantal isn't giving all of us good advice here. I mean, the scattergun name dropping may be Lynch's way of, of making what was already confusing so utterly inscrutable uh, that we just have to give in and say, look, don't overthink it. Just watch it. Just enjoy the ride. Don't try too hard to understand the silverware. Just love the dog.
1: OK, but
0: yeah, guys, I mean, I, honestly, like we could keep talking about this, but I'm I'm really hungry. I want some Wendy's. So <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to call the episode. Uh,
1: all right, wait, let me just ask Kyle one more yeah. question. Kyle, if uh, if the investigation, if the FBI's investigation does not match up with Deputy Hawks and if it doesn't actually uncover the connection between uh, Bad Cooper and Dougie and the Black Lodge. Will you be satisfied or unsatisfied with the finale and the series as a whole? I th- th- there's a
3: certain degree of, of
1: unclarity that,
3: that I'm willing to live with and, in fact, want. Um, I, I can
1: be satisfied with a degree of dissatisfaction. Right, but that specific plot line, do you need that plot line to wrap up to be satisfied, or can that be left open ended and you'd still be okay? It depends on what you mean by open ended. I mean, if they never if they never converge in
3: any way. Uh yeah that that yeah, will that, that will leave me irritated.
0: They, they, they are but they are they already they and already I, I have I think converged. they are
3: and I think they will. They already have and, converged.
0: And Diane's right. found Twin Peaks uh, on her right. phone. Right. And, I, and I think
3: that will happen hey. you know whether it will come to a clear good has defeated evil resolution. I I don't I'd like that. I don't need that. But if if good okay. coop and bad right. coop and Hawk Never are in the same place together at the same time. And, and you know, he just remains Dougie forever and is married to Janie E and yeah. never knows he was Dale Cooper. Uh, I, Yeah, that will that will bug me. But, you know, there's a reason Mike is saving his life. There's a reason that Mike tells him to wake up. We do expect him eventually to wake up.
1: Right. I mean, unless there isn't, right? Like, that's that's the thing. Like, in the rest of these six hours, I just think we're going to get so much more vacuuming and sweeping and roadhouse performances than we are going to get resolution as to why Mike is doing anything. Um, and, and I'm not particularly bothered by it. I'm just curious as to how much everybody else has hanging on these other uh, plot developments and points. But thank you for exploring sure. it with me.
0: All right, guys. Next up, Wendy's. Uh, thanks next for...
2: up. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> th- th- thanks for tuning in. Thanks, kyle ken and jeff for joining us and uh have a good week and we will be talking at you after episode 13 and tell your dad
1: happy birthday ken
2: when will you be rejoining
1: us oh yeah i'm going for episodes 13 and 14 i'll see everybody back for uh 15 assuming they keep the same broadcast schedule so uh, safe travel thank you thank you so much and i'll see you in a few weeks
0: enjoy your furlough ken thanks all right bye-bye everybody
4: i I came in here for a special offer, a guaranteed personality. I'm all tuned in, I see all the programs, I save coupons for packets of tea. I've got my giant I came in here for the special offer A guaranteed personality